0: In the case of Northern Ireland, we asked a batch of questions about people's experience of of the conflict. Not their opinions, but what happened to them. And did they know people close to them that were killed? Were they injured? Were they imprisoned? What did they witness in terms of the violence? What violence were they caught up in? Something like 21 significant items. That we asked them about in terms of their experience and to cut a long story short when you look at that and you divide people up into heavy experience moderate low and no experience at all you get a very dramatic difference in the health status of people with heavy experience and people with no experience and it's glaringly obvious to me from that data which is very unremarked on, I have to say. But it's very obvious from me that that explains the much heavier reliance on um, long-term sickness and disability
1: benefits. Hello, and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. Our topic today is Social Security in a Unified Ireland. Uh, And that's the name of a paper written and published uh, on the Irons website by Mike Tomlinson, who's Emeritus Professor of Social Policy at Queen's University, Belfast, and also published um, on the website and um, you know, in the uh, International Studies Journal is a response uh, by Seamus McGuinness of the Economic and Social Research um, Institute. So, and I should say just at the beginning that the article um, is a a trove of of interesting and useful statistics um, about both the present situation and the various possible future situations, Uh, and in addition, you know, it it raises a number of very interesting sort of policy questions. Maybe, Mike, we can kick off um, with, with you, and maybe you could just tell us briefly what's the sort of scope and purpose of the article?
0: Well, perhaps I can go back to late 2019, early 2020, before the pandemic kicked in, when I started research on this paper. At that stage, I was becoming increasingly frustrated with the debate around unity, which was being conducted at a very high level of arguments over the constitution, the conditions for a border poll, could the South afford the North, You know, some economic analysis. And occasionally, people would mention public services. Now, as a professor of social policy, this is something that concerns me greatly. But if they did mention public services, it was always education and health, health being of great interest to a lot of people, particularly because of the NHS in the north. So this seems to attract quite a lot of interest. Nobody was talking about social security, and yet social security is of huge interest to most people. It's the dominant question in the politics of taxation and spend. So I found this rather odd. So my first objective was to put Social Security on the agenda. The second purpose was to give uh, a summary, a kind of a thumbnail sketch, as it were, of the two systems. How similar are they? How different are they? And this begins to indicate to people some of the complexities of any administrative unification. Um, Thirdly, I wanted to talk about or to give a brief indication of how effective the social security systems, the Irish and the British social security systems are at mediating income inequality and, and of course, poverty. So there's some discussion of, of that. Then, of course, one of the main questions that people ask is, how will I be affected as a a worker, as an employee, or as an employer? What would unity mean if we all came under the Irish tax code? So I do some sort of fairly complicated calculations, taking the income distribution as we knew it in 2019, 2020, And looking at different points on the income spectrum and calculating how the PAYE system would affect people to begin to address that that better off question. Then there's a section on employers and employers' uh, costs, the costs of employing people. And then finally, I end up trying to kind of gross all of this up and imagining a moment of transition uh looking at the affordability of the costs that would transfer to a unified uh state so you asked me there about uh, the underlying assumptions well i make two assumptions the first is that there would be a unitary state as regards taxation and and social security and the major public services now I think this is quite important because there's quite a discussion going on, and we heard this from the Tornister and also from a piece in the Irish Times by Michael McDowell this week, advocating for a federal uh, type of, of system, and yet neither are really explaining what unity would mean in terms of what would actually be at the centre of the state. You can talk about a federal system but you do need to explain what the central government as it were, what bits of the unified system um, are present you know is it a unified taxation system is it a unified health system or what? so these these are critical questions and anybody advocating a federal system which which I don't um, needs to explain exactly what they're saying on that. The second assumption was to do with the data that I used. Um, I thought as I continue to work on this, that it's, it's best to stay with data that predates the pandemic and the distortions to public expenditure that came along with the pandemic and also with the the, the current uh, energy crisis or cost of living crisis, as people are, are calling it, because these have, have altered the, the figures quite a lot. So my assumption is take the more stable position as we knew it at the end of the 2010s and uh, work through the examples, um, both in terms of individual impacts of unity um but also in terms of grossing it up the the effects on on uh, public expenditure so that's um that's the scope of the article
1: thank you very much um indeed mike uh, and indeed that question of whether there is a continuing northern ireland of some sort is is a fairly central one and it's one which some of our work in Aaron's has begun to address, but uh, but not yet in in, in in great detail. Um Seamus, uh, do you want to make any initial kind of comments um on, on the topic and on Mike's paper?
2: Sure, Rory. Um really just to start by by congratulating Mike. I mean the um, the amount of work on uh, what has achieved here shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, what Mike has, has done effectively um, without having the resources of a, of a research institute like the SRI behind them is, is to effectively map uh, both social security systems uh, against each other uh, in key areas, uh, examine poverty rates, how um, differences in welfare payments uh, compare after accounting for or uh, differences in price levels, The impact of, but then more importantly, I think what this research, where this research goes beyond what we've done before. So we looked at a lot of the work that's been out there. It's been comparative, you know, comparing the North uh, and the South's education systems or income levels or health systems. But this paper brings the analysis one step beyond and actually asks questions around what Happens if we apply the Irish the Irish tax code to um the, to Northern Ireland's uh, to the Northern Ireland economy and workers and, and employers um, post unity. I mean, and that is really where the analysis needs needs to go. In, in terms of all of these key questions, we we need to move away from the comparative to really actually what are the potential models out there and what are the implications um, of that. Um, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult exercise that uh, Mike has undertaken, but uh, some key takeaways that really struck me um, was actually, we knew that the Irish tax system was much more progressive than that that is applied within the, the, the UK and the North generally. But the, the notion actually um, of higher income, higher tax takes, uh, which around three quarters of a billion or 11% higher um, if the Irish tax system was applied. To the north, to me, that's a huge finding because again, that 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 feeds into the subvention a bit, uh, very fundamentally. Even if we take productivity as something that is static, that it's not. If we ignore the issue of transition periods, so again, that was a that was a huge um, a huge contribution of the paper, and also I think the identification of um, the existing treaty between and the convention on social security between um, the uh, the Irish government and the British government and the protection of 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 social security rights um, as being a key element of the debate around pensions and the liability for pensions was, was was another key contribution and I think it's important to state that that's what makes the debate around pensions very different I think than the, the debate around pensions for Scottish unification we have a convention in place and we have. Uh, Custom and practice around uh, how pensioners are treated when they when they move from the UK back to Ireland or Spain or elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, just to commend Mike and to point out, you know, that, that I think there are significant contributions on a number of fronts arising from this paper. Uh, absolutely, and we'll come back to
1: a couple of the specific
2: points uh, later
1: on. Um, as I say, Mike, you've gone beyond comparisons, but comparisons are still very important and very interesting. Um, so maybe you might just give us a, a, a sketch of the sort of aggregate levels of of current social security expenditure, north and south, uh, and also the the differences in the kind of uh, measures that are involved. We'll talk about the outcomes for individuals in a in a moment. But as I say initially, you know the overall picture of uh, of the, of the of the size and uh, the allocation between different headings.
0: Well, what I do in the paper is um, take the total public expenditure in each jurisdiction, look at the total Social Security costs or expenditure, identifiable expenditure on Social Security benefits, which of course is not the same as the total expenditure because a lot of expenditure goes across in the form of tax breaks to people. But leaving that aside, we're just talking about identifiable cash expenditure on social security, and what I do for each jurisdiction is express social security as a proportion of public expenditure, rather than get into per capita values and all the rest of it. So we're just looking at this proportionately. And at the start of the the 2010s, in the north, you have a situation where social security is about 32% of all total, the total of identifiable expenditure. By the end of that decade, it's gone up to 39%. And what's happening in the North there is that the increasing costs of pensions, that aging population that you have in the North compared to the relatively young population in the South is kicking in and a fairly kind of linear trend that's going on there. This contrasts with the South where in 2010, Um, Social Security as a percentage of all public expenditure was 45% compared to that 32% I mentioned earlier in relation to the North. Why was that? And actually, it continued to rise for a few years. Uh, um, Why was that? And that was to do with the disruptions and the unemployment caused by the banking crisis. That's what was going on there. But once we get over that... That proportion begins to decline so that by the time you get to 2018 the proportions are almost exactly the same now that has changed a bit in the south i think in the latest budget the figure has come down even more the proportion spent on cash benefits as a proportion of total expenditure This will be more up to date with this than i am i think it's come down a little but it's very interesting to me that we arrive at the the more or less the end of that that decade And the systems look very similar in terms of the proportion of total um, public expenditure that is going on social security systems. The other interesting um, thing is the distribution of that between different kinds of beneficiaries. Pensions, the state pension is is the most important factor here because the vast majority of expenditure goes on, not the vast majority, but a big chunk of Social Security spending goes on state pensions. So you arrive at a situation for the North where 42% of all the Social Security expenditure goes on pensions. And that compares in the same year with a figure of 38% in the case of the South. Now, that's risen 10 percentage points over the decade in in the South. Um, And it's risen by only six percentage points in relation to to the North. But again, we end up with a situation where fairly similar proportions of the total Social Security budget is going on pensions. And we can repeat this exercise, although it's actually quite difficult to do in terms of disaggregating the the published data. It's not an easy thing to do. But the one difference that is very obvious in the data is the expenditure North and South on long-term sickness and disability. And I think it's important to address this because there are reasons for this, which are somewhat contested in relation to the North. For example, in the South, in 2018, you have a situation where 21% of social security expenditure goes on the long-term sickness and disability. In the North, it's a third, it's 33%. And it's the one big difference that, that you have. There are some differences in terms of family benefits, particularly child benefit in the South tends to be more generous, so that's a a bigger proportion of the spending. But the big difference, North and South, is in this long-term sickness and disability. And I can take this a little bit further with an example that's not in the paper, but subsequent work has revealed this. In 2019, 2020, the North was spending, or at least the Treasury was telling us that the North was spending £1,437 a year per head on long-term sickness and disability benefits. Now, if you compare that to the figure for Wales, Wales with its history of industrial decline, heavy industry, coal mining, all the rest of it, the figure was only 968. So this is a very, very big difference. And the question is why? And my answer to this comes from a piece of work that I did with colleagues from six universities across the UK on poverty and social exclusion um, around um, 2012 was our last survey on this, where in the case of Northern Ireland, we asked a batch of questions about people's experience of, of the conflict, not their opinions, But what happened to them and did they know people close to them that were killed were they injured were they imprisoned what did they witness in terms of the violence what violence were they caught up in something like 21 significant items that we asked them about in terms of their experience and to cut a long story short when you look at that and you divide people up into heavy experience moderate low and no experience at all, you get a very dramatic difference in the health status of people with heavy experience and people with no experience. And it's glaringly obvious to me from that data, which is very unremarked on, I have to say, but it's very obvious from me that that explains the much heavier reliance on um, long term sickness and disability benefits.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting because of course uh, there's a lot of uh, of talk in Britain uh, about the you know what some people on, on the right in particular would regard as an excessive aggregate level of expenditure on on long-term illness health uh, benefits and the striking thing is as you see that Northern Ireland what is roughly calculation 50 percent higher per per head than um, than Wales and I should have clarified earlier I suppose that of course Northern Ireland while it would have had, the capacity to to vary social um, security payments has in fact really since the 1940s uh, aligned itself entirely with the with the british system am i right in, in that
0: well it's constitutionally a very very interesting question the degree to which northern ireland has autonomy over spending decisions or social security policy let, let's put it like this legally technically it does in actual fact it doesn't because the treasury controls the purse strings and, and this this constitutionally is a very very interesting uh, issue now there have been challenges to um the treasury telling us what our social security uh, policies should be The most important one of those was over the implementation of welfare reform in the mid 2010s, where Stormont refused to to go get back up and running unless there were some mitigating measures because people, politicians felt that the introduction of universal credit, especially, was going to be to the detriment of, of people. So there was a bit of a political standoff of that kind. But all of those mitigation measures were were fairly short term. It's interesting that in the past, unionist governments, there's a famous example in Brendan O'Leary's second book of his his trilogy, where he talks about the blatant sectarianism of Stormont in trying to vary payments um, of family allowances to, to large families. They wanted to restrict uh, the payments. And there was a similar standoff in a way with the Treasury. Uh, it was very much below the radar, but um, people know about this now. And the Treasury put its foot down and said, no, no, we're not allowing you to do this. So they they got back in line on this. And there are other examples of, of minor variations. Um, but but essentially, uh, the Treasury calls, calls the shots here. And the amount of variation that has taken place has been minor. It has been significant in trying to mediate some of the worst effects of George Osborne's austerity. It, it has worked to a certain extent and has prevented poverty rates uh, rising, as they might have done during that period, to a certain extent. But, yeah, um, this is why Social Security, again, is constitutionally very, very interesting, um, We have control over spending, apparently, but we don't have control over the budget and the funds to raise it. National insurance is not a devolved tax. Um, It's a reserved tax, Uh, and although there's discussion that the Fiscal Commission has come forward with, with the possibility of varying uh, income tax, like um, goes on in, in, in Scotland, We've got nowhere near any of that. Obviously, we've got a dysfunctional stormment at the moment, and no up and running government. So there's very little discussion of the way forward on that.
1: Thank you. You know, that's I, I'm, I'm I'm better educated now than I was at the start. Um, you also in your in your paper, you you talk a bit about the uh, the taxation um, and indeed the social insurance, national insurance uh, arrangements, and you have a very interesting table where you look at the. And the relative impact of those deductions uh, on the the pay packets of workers and uh, employees at different levels of, of of income. I mean, perhaps then you might move on now to the question of outcomes um, for individuals and for society as a, as a whole. I mean, first of all, um, you, you know, poverty levels were mentioned earlier. Um, so the overall effectiveness, if you like, of social security policy, uh, and secondly, then. Um, how different individuals um, come out um, when it comes to the intersection of of tax uh, and social welfare?
0: Well, I suppose one of the criticisms of the paper might be that I've chosen a very, very simple comparison in terms of poverty rates. Really, if we wanted to compare poverty North and South, we would would need to compute equivalent incomes across the whole of, of Ireland and then compare household incomes, to that level or to the 60% threshold but i've i've taken the the european or the eurostat convention which is simply take the distribution of income disposable income in a country in a jurisdiction and establish that 60 60% threshold and look at the proportion of households or individuals of different kinds who are below that that threshold that is the the loose definition of income poverty. So I've taken that and I've applied it in the case of um, published data by the CSO in the case of the South and and NISRA in, in the North. And you can see that poverty amongst pensioners and poverty amongst children is persistently higher in the North than in the South. And the question is why? Um, And we know that income inequality is much greater in the north than in the south, although income inequality is not as great in the north as in the UK as a whole. But it's still up there, obviously, because the north is subject to the British taxation system. So you have you have that uh, situation in terms of income inequality as measured by the Gini coefficient or by the proportion, the share of income that goes to the bottom 40% of, mm. of households. So we, we, have, we have these measures, and it's very clear that the South is better than the North in terms of poverty level, poverty rates, and so on. And the reason is fairly simple, I think. It's because income inequality is higher in the North and benefits are lower. Those are the two main factors. Uh, So um, it's not just income inequality. Wages tend to be lower as well. But those are the two principal factors that explain um, why the situation in the North is worse than in the South.
1: Yes, it's very striking. You do produce tables about the real value of child benefit per annum and the real value of state pensions. And in every instance, I mean, taking you know, different categories, even the people. Um, the differential is, is at least 1.3 um, and and rises to two and a half times in, in certain other areas. So that is very striking. And presumably, when you also come to the measurement of poverty, um, you know, the the basis of the calculation in Northern Ireland is already uh, lower than the basis of the calculation in, in the south of what 60% would be. Um, Seamus, you wanted to come in there.
2: Yes, uh, and I think uh, another uh, point worth making is that there's also, in, in, while there's differences in, in the rates of uh, social welfare payments, there are very strong cultural differences in how um, the these payments are administered north and, and south. Um, so... In the north, if we look at unemployment uh, benefits and the assistance to, to the unemployed, um, it's a much more punitive and stringent approach to activation policy. We see much more uh, application of um, sanctions to unemployment individuals who don't uh, meet certain criteria, the test for personal independence payments, uh, it seems to almost be the case that you know you have to get uh, disallowed and appeal before that is um, um, you know given to individuals in the north. Whereas in the south, it's a very different um, approach. I mean, I, I would almost say that social welfare recipients on, under this particular uh, Tory administration are demonised right across the British regions and the north, and that is certainly, uh, in my view. Uh, a very cultural difference in terms of how welfare is administered in the republic for example um this week the Sri um, we um, published a report on profiles and in the long term unemployed. And this is a model that I've been involved in developing. It's the second iteration of it. It sits within the social welfare offices and on the day an individual uh, makes a claim for unemployment, Um, they're asked a series of questions and they're given a score in terms of the probability that they will exit to a job. And if they have a very low probability, then the notion is, well, we let people who are going to get jobs. Go and we'll call them back in six months, and we'll see what's happening if there's a problem. But for the people who have very much more troubled labour market histories, then they can have more resources uh, allocated to them in terms of job search assistance, help with CVs, um, training opportunities, etc. So it's a very different environment uh, for for welfare recipients in the Republic than it is in the North. And I just sort of wanted to make that point.
0: I, I think if I could come in on that. Um... People really underestimate the degradation of social welfare, of public services generally, that's taken place in the UK since round about 2012, 2013. um, I was part of an advisory group um, developing an anti-poverty strategy for the North, as requested by the minister responsible. And one of the things that we we did in that is not only describe the regime problems that Seamus has articulated there, but we described the real decline in value of, of benefits and the lack of respect for those benefits and the lack, lack of any kind of belief in what is the function of these benefits. And that particularly applies to to child benefit, as we call it now, the old family allowance. And it, it's interesting to see the way Scotland has diverged from the, the British system by introducing their own special child payment to supplement um, child benefit, because they realise this is the most effective way of dealing with child poverty, but dealing with family poverty. Um, and we recommended a very similar a, a kind of payment. But it's it's barely compensating people for essentially the, the degradation of social security that's taken place over the last 10 years. And sadly, we may be in for another round of it. Um, it may be an issue that splits the Tory party in Britain. I, I don't know. But um, we're in a very, very dangerous situation in terms of further degradation. And as for the whole notion that uh, people kind of choose a life on, on benefits, and you still hear some of this the, this rhetoric, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's complete and utter nonsense. Nobody chooses to be shamed by visiting food banks. They just don't do that voluntarily. It's where involving hundreds of thousands of people in this kind of shameful 1930s kind of soup kitchen mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, activity and and it's it's obviously, I believe it's dreadful.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> um, you you also just just to mention briefly, you also take a look um, at the incidence of um, tax PIE deductions and um, social insurance and so on 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 different income categories. I mean, would it be fair to say that there isn't necessarily a huge difference um, in the impact of those systems um, between Ireland and Northern Ireland or Ireland and the UK that on the whole, um, lower paid um, workers in in Ireland and, and, and workers with children do a bit better um, and when you go up the income scale, maybe there's a sort of a marginal advantage close to the top uh, for people in Northern Ireland, although that doesn't seem to be carried through to the, um, the 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 90th, the highest percentile that you look at. Is is that a fair summary?
0: It is a fair summary. Um I, I don't know whether we want to recite some some figures here, but um Irish social insurance at the 20th percentile, somebody would, um, at the 20th, 20th percentile of earnings, would uh, make a contribution of €17.60. The equivalent contribution to the British system would be €29.40, but some of those differences do even out according to circumstances and according to salary level. And as Seamus was saying earlier, the point is that the income tax system in the South is more progressive. So that you see on the table in the article that I'd done that at the 80th percentile, the British income tax would be a weekly charge of 131 euro 90, Whereas under the Irish system, it would be 178.10. So, you know, that's 50 euros difference in in the income tax level. But by the time you've put income tax, social insurance, and the universal social charge together, um, for the most part, and applied that to northern salary levels, as, as they existed at the time that we did this, 2019, uh, most people would actually gain under the Irish tax code they would gain between 12 euros and 19 euros 20 euros a week until you get up to the 70th percentile and then they begin to lose
1: yeah and and, and just and this one other thing very briefly you you mentioned at the beginning that you've also looked of course at the burden of of social insurance or national insurance on employers uh, again not an enormous difference but you maybe you might just say a quick word about about that
0: yeah um what I say in the article is that employers of lower paid workers in the north may be slightly worse off in terms of social insurance contributions than um they are at the at the moment but um they this will be more than compensated by gains that they'll make in lower, corporation tax but uh, this this actually relates both these points the consideration of the position of employees and the position of employers relates to a suggestion that I made in a contribution to the Ireland's future book that was was published um, a week ago where I suggest that we need to begin to think about, developing online facilities or online apps where people can actually find out whether they would be better or worse off given their current circumstances mm-hmm. under the Irish taxation system or under the Irish tax code as it changes. So this begins to kind of tune people into how mm-hmm. things work um, and they can see according to their their circumstances whether they're going to be better, or worse off. And the same kind of facility needs to be there for employers so we, employers can engage in that kind of OECD exercise of what is the cost of employing people comparing their current situation with the situation in the South.
1: Okay, if we can now move on to the, the future or to a possible future. Um, and a couple of sort of, you know, questions sort of jumped out at at me um, and the, the first being, if you were to equalize um well payments uh, and taxation post unification, you know what would the impact be on individuals? what would the overall cost be and you know what would be a realistic time frame for bringing that into effect? I mean you've already we've already I think established that the the taxation and social insurance elements are not that different um so moving from one system to the other wouldn't necessarily radically change things for individuals but obviously the levels of payments are quite are quite are quite different um and of course um you know i i my own personal opinion is anyway that politically it would be very hard to sustain for very long um, a system of of sort of differential social um security payments but Maybe you might like to talk about maybe both of you would like to talk about that.
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. Um yeah, I think that I agree with Rory that it it it's not something that's that's sustainable in the long run having differential rates of social welfare payments. However, it depends upon the context. If there's a border poll accepting reunification and if there's a transition period of say five years or two years, I think during a transition period, um those differences would be more tolerable. Uh, but people would have a reasonable expectation at the end of that or during that there would be some convergence towards our complete assimilation of rates at, at the end of it so I, I think it it depends on how the general sort of political uh question is 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 addressed how it, how it is resolved I think if there was again uh this notion that you have your border poll on a Friday and unification on the Monday, then that would not be, people would be expecting these changes to be automatically. But if you are framing difference, as, as was the case with Brexit, where there was a transition period and a lead in period, um, I think that, th- that those those differences are more tolerable. Uh, and then the, the question is, what do we do during that um, that period? There will be demographic changes that will affect the bill at the end of that. Um, but then there needs to be policy questions uh, addressing general um, low levels of productivity um, in, in the north. So you could have a higher um, potentially social welfare bill at the end of it, but then you could have higher tax receipts if you're able to affect the education system or find direct investment in a way that boosts. The other side of the equation that Mike has been showing in terms of the tax receipts.
1: I mean, I'm sorry uh, sorry, come in in a second, um, Mike, but either of you, I mean, any any even ballpark figure for what the additional cost to the exchequer and the Irish exchequer, as it would be by then, would be of, of such a move, I mean, assuming, and a big assumption, assuming no change in comparative economic performance. Now that's a, a very large assumption which um which people are rightly would, would caution against. But um but in a static exercise if you like, um any idea of what sort of overall figures we'd be talking about?
0: Well um I I do attempt um a, a table that uh estimates costs at at the moment of transition and um, I particularly pay attention to pensions and to child benefit um, for obvious reasons that have come out during the course of of the podcast. Child benefit certainly in relation to, to poverty and pensions because there's a particular issue about entitlements and who should pay for them. I, I do think that the cost of transition is much lower than people think it, it would be, and therefore it's much more affordable and can be coped with within the existing um, the existing levels of contributions that are made, particularly as Seamus has already pointed out. I've estimated that about three quarters of a billion additional income would come in via the PAY system, PAYE system, um, which could could address um, the, the differences or the additional expenditure that, that comes through. So I do I do think it's manageable. It's probably, if you like, the the most speculative part of the mm-hmm. paper, because I just haven't had the resources to work it fully through but perhaps we should talk about the pensions issue because this
1: is I'm absolutely no no I'm I'm leaving I'm leaving the best to last if you if if you <laughs> like in the conversation but just one other one other question though just to explain to me and to listeners if the current impact of PIE on individuals is somewhat slightly to the advantage of um individual taxpayers in in the south um How do you calculate that there would be this quite substantial extra tax take um, post unity?
0: It's because of the increased income tax on the top 30% of of earners. That's where it comes from.
1: So, if you are a northerner.
0: And to a certain extent, from employers' contributions on the low paid, which would be higher. It comes from those two sources. So, another. Remember, we're we're talking about a unified pot now. We're talking about an all ireland social insurance
1: fund now yeah but in other words if we're trying to identify winners and possible losers and again this is a purely static um, exercise if you were if you were a member of the sort of northern ireland sort of upper middle class or professional class you you might expect to lose something um, in this uh, financially at least in this uh, in this transition am i am i right to say that
0: your income will be
1: taxed more
0: heavily and you may lose some of your other privileges in terms of um low local taxation and and such like yeah um it it it's it's possible that from a on a class basis um those people would be slightly worse off
1: okay well pensions indeed and this is a in a, a very important part of your of your paper and as uh, Seamus was saying earlier, you, you have highlighted the um, agreement reached um, between the British and Irish governments uh, in the course of, of, of the Brexit uh, negotiations or in the context of the Brexit negotiations. But maybe you might like to, to say, because I think a lot of people will, will say, well, hang on a moment, um, how confident can you be um, that state pensions will actually you know, continue to be paid by the British government for you know a substantial period?
0: Well, let's not exaggerate what what I'm saying here. Um, We're we're talking about the entitlements of individuals who have contributed over their their working life. We're talking about existing state pensioners in the north and the expectation that the Treasury would continue to pay those entitlements. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about some kind of grand commitment of the Treasury to carry on paying pensions for forever and ever. We're talking about entitlements that people have on an individual basis, on the basis of their contributions over their working life. And um, Europe, in its wisdom, recognizing that workers move from place to place, developed a system from the early 2000s onwards, whereby states would recognize the work records and the insurance contributions of people that are moving around different countries when it came to calculating their notional entitlement. Why this is important is under the Irish system, for example, um, the rules were changed recently to you will not get a state pension if you haven't contributed or if you contributed less than 10 years. That's a kind of a kind of threshold. So let, let's think about the situation of Northerners retiring within that 10-year year period. They'll have only contributed, say, six or seven yeah. years into this new United Ireland Social Insurance Fund. Does that mean they get nothing back from that? Well, the convention says: no, that's not true. You're required to consider people's full working record. So let's assume they've worked all their lives in the North under the UK system, and they've worked seven or eight years under United Ireland system. So notionally, their theoretical entitlement is that they've they've worked all their lives. So they've worked more than the 10 years. So they can't be barred from some pro rata Mm. from eight years worth of pension on retirement from the old Southern system. Um, and likewise, the Treasury will be obliged to pay them for what contributions they paid un- under that, that old system. So that's that's basically how it works in Europe and how the convention that was signed in 2019 in, in Dublin between Ireland and Britain, which replaced that convention because there is so much um, interplay of workforces between uh, Ireland and Britain—that's what it says. And even if, even if it came to the point and Britain decided it didn't want to have anything to do with this treaty anymore, the treaty actually says that they must recognise rights accumulated up to that point, up to that point of quote denouncement, because mm-hmm. that's the legal term that, that, that is used so i think i'm on pretty strong ground in arguing the case that not only existing pensions that are in, in payment by the treasury would continue but that pension entitlements that or at least the contribution records of people over the years up until the point of unity also have to be acknowledged by by the british treasury
1: so just to be absolutely clear if if I'm fifty and I've worked for twenty five years, in the you know in, within the UK as it were in Northern Ireland part of the UK, then twenty fifth the equivalence of twenty five years worth of pension is is continued is paid by the uh, the British Exchequer and then the remainder is the balance is paid and of course it would be open as I think you point out, um and one of the things you suggest is that the Irish government might wish to. Uh, contribute more, or make a special payment to to level up uh, pensions, for for instance, between those who've worked in the in, in in Northern Ireland and those who've worked in the Republic.
0: I mean, I haven't made a fully worked through plan for this, but yes, certainly it would be open to the new unified state to supplement the poor pensions that have been earned that have been earned yes. by. By people, people in the north. Now, bearing in mind that the way that this system works is that you're, you're qualifying, if you like, for so many years pro rata of the British under the British pension scheme versus the the Irish pension scheme, and those two payments um, at the individual level uh, make make up your sure sure your pension. I mean, it, it's uh, it's actually very very difficult to get data on this, but. Um, The latest data I was able to to get hold of from the European Commission applied to 2018. And at that point, Britain was paying for about half a million pensioners living in European countries, including 133,000 living uh, in the South. Now, um, very few of those people were on a full pension. It was all part pensions, judging, judging by the average amount. That, that was in, in payment. So those people who had worked for some years in, in the UK were receiving a payment from Britain, from the British treasury or from the Northern authorities. Um, and they're also receiving something from the South, presumably. So that, that's that's how their, their pension income is made up. It's made up of two sources, or if they'd spent a bit of time in Germany, more than five years in Germany, Um, they'll be getting something from there too so
1: I mean if I if I may play devil's advocate um, uh, and well the fact that I will be presenting a notional British government view does not mean I think they're diabolical Um, the the argument might be well look this convention and indeed I I was involved myself to some extent in its negotiation the idea would be that this is meant to sort of regularise the situation post Brexit and that it didn't contemplate or doesn't contemplate you know, an enormous shift um, in responsibility and jurisdiction of this of this sort. Um, and, you know, that since we have pay-as-you-go systems in both countries, in reality, despite talk of funds and so on, that, you know, at the very minimum, it would be something which would be up for negotiation um, as part of an overall package, perhaps. I mean, I think, Seamus, you, you sort of suggest that that's at least a, a possibility, I think.
2: Well, I I do in the context, if you look at the behaviour of this current British government, and even though, you know, th- there is a treaty in, ex- in existence, you know, we've had the British uh, Prime Ministers uh, at, at, at question time today standing up, again reiterating um, their position on the Northern Ireland prot- Protocol, which most, most people uh, seem to accept as a breach of international law. So, I, I, you know, I think... Um, the the reputation of the of the British uh, state has been fundamentally damaged by this administration. I'm not sure that changes uh, if you have a different um, British government in place. It may or it may not. But, you know, I think you, you at least have to be prepared um, for a, a future British government in a negotiation on unity following a ratified border poll to be at least be prepared to seem to renege on prior um, commitments um, in an attempt to sort of you know negotiate the best deal for themselves. I don't I don't I don't expect it'll be any different. To be honest, right?
0: Yeah, you would you would end up with a very peculiar position though, um, with um, a British government that has recognised the rights of some people but not the rights of other people. Um, and I do appreciate the argument that the aggregate payments coming across at the point of trying to settle the the issue um, when there's a unified Ireland. um, That that kind of calculation is separate from the individual calculation of what an individual is is entitled to. But but look where this argument begins to go. Are we really saying that the Treasury would say, well, we're we're not going to pay pensions anymore of existing pensioners? Because they would have a class action involving three hundred thousand people on their hands if they did that, I, I imagine, um, because there would be no obligation of the on, on the Irish state as it was to undertake this. So you'd have a very very difficult political situation, and the victims of this would be would be existing pensioners and and future pensioners. And I think the starting point certainly for calculating individual entitlement goes back to that traditional thing of what are people's work histories. You know, it's uh, then, then the question of who pays for, for that and how you regard their past contributions to society, their stamp that they've been paying all, all of these years, whether that's a kind of a moral contract with, with uh, Britain or, or Ireland uh, in the past, and whether that should be honoured or not, well, we we wait and see. But I mean, if I was across the negotiating table, I'd certainly be saying that this is an individual contract that's always been understood between workers and the state that they've worked in. It's a principle that is there in European law. It is a principle that is there in the convention. And um, the question of who pays uh, sh- should reflect that.
1: I suppose if I were the British government, though, I might say, well, look, um, it's un- it would be unconscionable for the Irish government not to at least maintain, if not improve, the level of state pension that be paid to existing pensioners. Um, you know, you sought unity, you have unity, and now you can pretty well pay for it. Um, I mean, I suppose an interesting question is, and, and a relationship... As sort of, a sort of
0: punishment...
1: Well, not even a punishment, but simply a, a recognition that the well, the Irish government has assumed responsibility, which is, is actively sought, if you know what I mean. But no, I'm look. I'm not good. I'm not. A, I'm just just a I'm just a sort of a thought. I think one of the key things in this whole discussion, also about the subvention, this came out in John Doyle's paper and in other discussions I've heard. I think it's very important to realise that the the so called subvention, and I think your paper has shown this as well, is while you can calculate, look at the different elements, that in fact, you know what those elements might amount to in the future depends a lot um, on you know policy decisions um you know and the outcome of negotiations between the the governments and also of course the question of economic growth as 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 well on the on the on on, on the two sides this has been a really i mean fascinating discussion i i have to say um and I just wanted to know um, if either of you wanted to make any kind of final points. Is there anything I, I, I didn't touch on or we didn't touch on which you would have liked to, to see covered? Maybe Mike?
0: Well, just to say that um, I very much welcome the opportunity to discuss the paper um, and to get the arguments about the importance and significance of Social Security um, more publicised. Um I regard the paper as very much a preliminary attempt to do this. It doesn't have all the answers by any means. It's beginning to open up some of the questions that that we need to to answer. Um, There's a lot of issues around administration and the workforces that um, look after uh, Social Security, the way that that is organised in the North and how much goes on in in England in relation to um insurance records or the calculation of child payments or mm. w- whatever the case may be so there are a lot of administrative com- complexities apart from anything else uh, and we haven't we haven't talked about the dissimilar aspects of the british versus the irish social welfare system Uh, and particularly the unravelling of universal credit
1: which
0: would be required. Uh, and nor have I anticipated some of the latest discussion around the, the direction that uh, the social welfare system should be taking uh, in, in the South. So there's um, it's very much a, an opening up sure. of, of questions and hopefully people will take it forward with. Uh, one point I would make uh, around this is that I have been slightly I'm not astonished. I've been slightly surprised that some of the commissions that have been sitting in in the South, Mm. considering very long-term, long-range questions about the sustainability of pensions, for example, where they're computing things over the next 70 years, have not been asked to think about the possibility of what would happen if there was unity um what would be the implications of that on our thinking about pensions long range Um, and i i very much welcome some of the indications that have come from i think the minister of finance um indicated recently that it would be good to start uh, modeling the tax take from the north. I've, mm. I've tried to do that in relation to this very limited example of PAYE, but but can we sort of say what taxes would be raised from the north and how would that affect the budgetary process and how would we start to build that in and start thinking about that in terms of kind of shadow budget making? And I would love to see that happen. Um and uh you know there's some indications within the political system both north and south that 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 that
1: would be welcome thank you and Seamus, just any last word from you
2: yes uh, i just uh, again to to command uh, i think um a very important uh, paper again. On the, uh, the contributions are, are 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 manifest. I think in terms of uh, comparing social welfare systems, it makes contributions to the subvention debate. Um, irrespective of, of my view of of the of the trustworthiness of the of the British government, it does highlight an important treaty that 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 will be important uh, going forward for that. That consideration as well as the additional tax take um, that would uh, accrue uh, to the Irish Exchequer uh, fr- from uh, taxing Northern Ireland businesses and employees. I think it provides an important framework uh, going forward for more dynamic analysis perhaps, um, looking at different simulations and different scenarios as, as Mike has, has pointed out and there are micro-simulation like, tools out, out there that, that can do that. I think the Euromod tool is in the SRI, so this is this is really going to be the um the 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 framework within which that dynamic analysis will be carried out in the future, I think
1: just a final thought from me before we we finish is that of course it would be fascinating in the event of a referendum to see to what extent the two governments would would put their cards on the table on, on this question. I mean, one has to assume and this is true of various things of various of various matters. one has to assume that the Irish government will also will wish to you know make the most positive case possible for the effects of unity. I'm not saying the British government would wish to make the most negative case against it, but at the same time, I suppose it might be conscious of the argument that if, as it were, with a view to that putative negotiation we were talking about, that if they give away too much too early, that would be seen as as skewing the balance in a certain way. But anyway, that's a that's all for another, another day or another decade. Who, 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 who knows? Look, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for your uh, contributions today. Mike, the paper is really interesting for all the reasons that we've heard and, and that Seamus has highlighted. Um, and Seamus, thank you very much as well for your uh, contribution, both both written and and here. And I think you're both right. There are some very important issues here, um, which we will benefit from seeing taken forward. But I think this paper makes a, a tremendous start on what's a really important area. Thank you. Thank,
2: thank you, Roy. <laughs>
1: It's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Kew Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Kew School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South, in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.